0: This is a presentation from Narara Valley Baptist Church, a church that's desperate for God and passionate for people.
1: I'd love to read some scriptures over us um, as we begin our, our time together. This is from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit, and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Isn't that beautiful? Well, last week, as Johnny said, uh, we had a fairly complex sermon sharing the, the vision for the year, the sort of game plan of what we're going to be going after, and it had uh, lots of points and lots of things that we're going to go uh, after. Uh, and next week, we're going to launch into our Matthew series, or series in Matthew, you might not know that yet, we're going to launch into a series in the book of Matthew, um, just making so much attention on the person and work of Jesus as we journey through that Lent devotional and all the way up to Easter. Uh, and um, I'm quite looking forward to having a little bit of a break from preaching for the next couple of weeks, and I'm sure you might be as well. Um, so we're going to open it up and have the chance to hear uh, from from many uh, in the life of our congregation as well, um, from passages of scripture. Uh, and earlier this week, I just had a had a real sense that before we kind of rush from one thing to the next thing um, as a community of faith, I just had this real sense from God that we needed just to take a moment a chance to actually pause, a chance to have some space together as a community, as the people of God. It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we desire to to attend to the presence of God and be attentive to the presence of God in our lives, then we need to make space to do that. If, when we gather together as the people of God, we want to be welcoming and worshipping the presence of God, we actually need to create space in order to do that, space to respond to His presence with us. I don't know about you, but I think there's something uniquely wonderful about encountering the presence of God. Something incredibly profound, powerful, transforming. Something beautiful, personal, sacred about experiencing this God who is with us. And so David is speaking into this, he's celebrating this, he's expressing this same heartfelt devotion here in Psalm 139. He's not necessarily laying forward theology about God's omnipresence, like we might see a Paul do in the book of Romans, for example, uh, nor is he kind of freaking out that there's nowhere that he can run away from God, like he's some sort of cosmic stalker, okay? Now, there's this celebration, this awe, this wonder, this humility that says, you know what, there is nowhere that I can go that God doesn't come with me. There's nowhere I can go, there's nothing I can experience in my life that I can't also experience the presence of the God who is with me. And you can just get this sense of his delight and his wonder, just his rapture of that this is who God is. And so this morning, as I said, love to just slow down for us a little bit, love to give us some space to dwell in that idea that God's presence is with us. And I want to do that by looking at uh, one man's uh, encounter, one encounter that he has with the living God, Um, probably through a pretty familiar passage uh, to many of you, but if it's not, don't worry, we'll explain it as we go. Um, But before we do that, I think we actually need to stop and actually recognize and welcome that God's presence is us. We've already been doing that this morning. Um, but I'd love to in, invite you into a, a little breath prayer reflection and exercise. Very simple. I don't know if you've ever done this um, in the past, uh, but Christians throughout centuries have been using all manner of spiritual practices and spiritual disciplines that help cultivate in them an awareness of the presence of God with them. And so, this is a breath prayer. It's very simple. As you breathe in, God is with me. And as you exhale, and he delights in being with me. So I'd love to lead us in this. And we're going to do this seven times. Does anybody know why we're doing it seven times? Mostly arbitrary, let's be honest. <laughs> it is the number of completion in the Bible. But also, I think sometimes we need to... That's oh, why we repeat songs. We actually need to allow the truth of things to settle into our heart and allow them, the Holy Spirit, to give them life and meaning and speak to us. So I'm going to lead us in just in a, a little prayerful exercise here, and uh, I invite you to, to pray this. You're welcome to pray this out loud, you're welcome to pray this under your breath, you're welcome to pray this um, in your heart. But I'm just going to say this prayer, um, or really, this theology, um, out loud seven times. So inhaling. God is with me, and he delights in being with me again. God is with me, and he delights in being with me. God is with me, and he delights in being with me. God is with me, and he delights in being with me. Yeah, let that sink down. God is with me, and he delights in being with me. God is with me and he delights in being with me. One final time. God is with me and he delights in being with me. Heavenly Father, like David, we are so humbled by that beautiful truth that you are a personal God who is present with us you hem us in before and behind your hand is laid on our shoulder there is nowhere we can run from your presence and god we just want to say thank you we just want to say we love you we just want to say that we so delight in your presence in our life in your presence in this time and in this space together make us more aware lord more aware of your presence now and all of our days we pray In Jesus' name, amen. You can use that certainly at any time during your week as well, just to pray that. I think too often we're we're far, (laughs) we believe that God is with with others, don't we? And sometimes it's uh, very personal to actually recognize that not only is God with us in an objective theological truth, but actually he delights in being with us, the God who comes near in the personal work of his Son and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. So anyways, we're going to be in a, in a, yeah, a passage of encounter uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. Chances are, this is a very familiar passage to, to, to many of us. But I'm going to do a little context, assuming that you uh, don't know uh, where we are in our scriptures. Uh, Isaiah is a prophet um, in the Old Testament with the old people of God. And prophets in the Old Testament they have a very unique vocational calling. Uh, they are called by God to help point people to him. To, to call them back from their wayward ways sometimes, uh, or to remind them of truths about God's character and nature and what he expects his people to be living out, uh, and, and to direct them back into loving relationship, covenant relationship um, with their God. They also have this very unique part of their role, which is they have a very special part of their role, which is to speak truth to power, uh, particularly the kings, but also uh, the priests who serve in the nation. Uh, and so these prophets become God's kind of spokesmen, if you like, uh, to speak into the kings to make sure that their hearts stay right with God and that they lead from that place of wanting to honour and glorify God and lead the people in the same ways. And so we read um, in the first... Um, <clears throat> first verse of Isaiah chapter 6, that this encounter that Isaiah has with God comes at a particular point in the history of the nation of Israel. Uh, One of the kings has just died, uh, King Uzziah, and he has been a good king. Uh, He came to to power when he was 16 years old, and he reigned in Judah for 52 years. Uh, So the people of God enjoyed an incredibly long period of stability, and the peace and the prosperity that went along with that. Now, if you read your Old Testament, you know plenty of the kings got a lot of things wrong. King Uzziah was one of the good guys. Uh, And the scriptures reflect that, that his heart was for God. And yet at the end of his life, he has this little moment where he kind of flakes out, and you can read about it in 2 Chronicles 26, verse 16, where it just records that after he became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. Actually, there was something in his heart where he just thought a little bit too much of himself, and he went against something that he knew wasn't in God's original intention. And God's judgment came against him, and his life actually ended. And so you can imagine for Isaiah, this prophet of God who has this unique vocational calling amongst the people of God to journey with the king, after this period of having such a good king whose heart was for God, how disappointed he would have been... That this king not only had died but it kind of flaked out right at the end and i imagine for isaiah and we're kind of reading into the text a little bit here but you can imagine that isaiah is filled with a level of disappointment in uzziah you can imagine that he's carrying a little bit of disillusionment with him as well maybe a bunch of frustration like oh but you're one of the good kings Maybe he questions God in that space as well, being like, oh, really, God, he's been, his heart's been so for you, and he's just flaked out, and you've brought judgment. Ah, where are you in all of this, God? And no doubt there is a little element in, in, the, in the human side of things where he's anxious as well. Well, well who, what's the next king going to be like? Where is the nation going to go in their walk with Yahweh, their covenant God, under the rule and the reign of the next king? And so, into this space of disillusionment, disappointment, questioning, frustration, anxiety, probably a whole bunch of faith and hope as well, God comes and he encounters Isaiah through this experiential vision of his presence being with him. Maybe you have your own reasons for needing an encounter with God this morning, too. But let's read it. In the year that King Uzziah died, so there's the uh, context, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. There's this vision that Isaiah is caught up into where he actually gets to see God seated on a throne, high and exalted, lifted up, this beautiful idea, this reassurance that Isaiah, I'm still on the throne, that I am still in control. That even though these things may happen in the life of the people of God, people doing things in the temple they they shouldn't be doing, I am still sovereign and exalted and worshipped as the one true living God. God is there, he's seated on a throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. You know, thousands of years ago, uh, kings or rulers would often wear really impractical clothing. Uh, and so the workers who had to work for their living and put food uh, on the table would kind of go, "Well, I would never need to or could wear something like that in order to provide for my family." It was a sign of status. It was a sign of um, of great wealth and worth. Uh, very clearly, they did not need to work for a living with such fancy clothes and had the kind of wealth uh, and, and the role and the position uh, amongst the people to be able to get away with wearing some of these things. And so the images of God, his train, like, like he's wearing clothes that fill the whole temple. And the idea is that he is so worthy, that he is so other, that he has so much wealth and authority and power that even his clothes point those who are there to this fact, still on the throne. And the vision continues building on this picture. Above him, above the Lord, were were angels, seraphim, called here. Um, There are other angels listed throughout the Bible called cherubim. Some Bible scholars are not sure if this is two types of angels or they're using different words to describe the same beings. But Each of them have six wings. Uh, With two wings, they're they're covering their faces uh, because the Lord is so holy they can't look at his face. With another two, they're covering their feet, which is a sign, a symbol of humility, that that the God would not look on the more humble parts of their body. And with another two, they're flying, representing their willingness and readiness to attend to whatever direction or need that the Lord has. And they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I love one Bible commentary on this. They just noted that the seraphim surrounding the throne of God could probably see this more clearly than Isaiah. And just noted that we are often blind to the obvious glory of God all around us. The obvious glory of God all around us. Isn't that cool? And Isaiah, peeking into this, being caught up into this vision... Actually, recognises that the sound of their voices, the sound of this praise, the sound of this declaration, actually shakes the very doorposts of the temple. So you kind of get this sense that the Isaiah's swept up into this vision of the throne room, got seated on the throne, train filling the temple, uh, angels attending to him, singing his praise and his glory, and he's like at the door, like like he's kind of peeking in from the doorposts, and so he's very clearly kind of going, wow, even back here the doorposts are shaking from the sound of this praise and this worship, so powerful and so wonderful and so mighty is this God, that people would sing that to him in, in such ways. And, of course, the glory was filled uh, with smoke, just like the clouds and the smoke that descended on Mount Sinai when God came down, uh, a visible, tangible representation of his glory and his presence filling the space. I love this from Sam Storm. We now are the temple of God. We spoke about a bit about this last week. If the inanimate structures of the old covenant trembled And shook at God's presence. What is our response? We in whom this same glorious and holy God now lives. How can there be the slightest indifference or coldness or routine or mere ritual or mindless habit in our worship when this same God now lives and abides in us? So I'd love to give us a chance to actually respond to this holy God invite Marcia and Josh up, and I think Liv might have been co-opted in as well. Um, and we're just going to sing, uh, not quite the words that the angels uh, are recorded singing in the book of Isaiah, but just a couple of sentences from a bridge and a very old song that hopefully a bunch of you know. Let me invite you in this time just to actually reflect, to pray, to respond to the glory of God that is with us. How can there be the slightest indifference or coldness or routine or mere ritual or mindless habit in our worship when this same God lives and abides in us? If you're feeling really brave, you're welcome to kneel as we sing this. If you don't know it, you're welcome to allow the words to wash over you and just to pray directly to God. We're just going to sing this a couple of times. Father, we declare that you are holy. Not just holy, God, but you are holy, holy, holy. There is none like you. There is none that compare. Your ways are not our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so, Father, we lift you up and we worship you. We give you glory and honor and praise to your name. Lord, we recognize and we are sorry for and we repent of the times where we have taken you for granted, where we've tried to domesticate you, put you in a box, the times where we've tried to control what happens even in programs at our church. Lord, we invite you to give us a big vision of who you are, Continues, obviously, in response to who that God is and that revelation that he is so holy, so holy, so holy, Isaiah becomes acutely aware of his own unholiness, lack of holiness, his own sinfulness. And I think really interestingly uh, for me, that's, that's often the thing that keeps us, isn't it, from pursuing God's presence. Uh, we become aware of our guilt and our shame, and so instead of running to him, we avoid him just like the first humans did in the Garden of Eden when they sinned and became aware of their shame. And yet in this, it's a great reminder for us that the most holy people that we can ever imagine, the people that we look up, the people we think, well, they must be right with God, they experience this same reaction in the presence and the holiness of God. And what you'll notice is that Isaiah doesn't go, all right, well, I need to go away and I need to sort out and I need to clean up my life in order to come back into here. But it's actually in our encounters with God that not only we're made fully aware of, of who we are, but we're also freed from any kind of religious performance. Because in this moment, Isaiah is so acutely aware that there is nothing that he can do to cleanse himself in a way that would make him perfectly acceptable before this holy, holy, holy being who's being revealed before him. And yet I love this, of course, uh, that God responds providing a way out. Uh, So Isaiah chapter 6, verse 6 and 7 Uh, We see God's response in this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God provides the way for Isaiah to feel complete and welcome, forgiven, cleansed in the presence of the almighty God. And one of the things I love that one of the commentators wrote, which I hadn't actually ever picked up on before, was there's no comment in here about Isaiah feeling pain. That sounds like a pretty painful thing. Has anyone ever burnt themselves? Oh, man, you feel that for days, don't you? Even if it's like a little touch on the the frying pan or something like that. And so the idea is, well, maybe there was actually no pain that he experienced, or, or maybe... The bigger picture was so important to him, there was not worth commenting on the pain that he felt and pain that he experienced. Uh, But I love this, and I love this is what he experiences. Freed from kind of this sense of religious performity, that God is the one who has cleansed him and brought him clear, he can actually be fully present with God in God's presence. And so I think that's where we've got that uh, quote up there as well. I love this from Heidi. One minute of God's presence can accomplish more than 20 years of your striving, Heidi Baker once wrote. One minute of God's presence can accomplish more than 20 years of our striving. Obviously, I'm um, thinking during the week, like, man, do I have a good story of encountering the presence of God that would be good to share? Uh, and I was like, but how do you pick? <laughs> how do you pick? <laughs> How do you pick? I look back over the course of my life, and there are these so many moments where I've experienced God's nearness, His Holy Spirit moving in my life that has brought genuine and real transformation. I don't know if you experience this. I'm seeing a few smiles, a few glimmering eyes. I I think you know exactly what I'm talking about. But this is what it feels like for me, or this is how I often experience it. That I, I've been going about my life not paying attention and not being aware of God's presence in my life, and I've managed to somehow actually stop and be attentive and be aware to God's presence in my life. Uh, for me, that happens in all manner of ways. Um, but you know, I actually stop, and, and I do get this immediate sense of the world slowing down, my my internal world slowing down. That kind of adrenaline that had been just pumping doing, me doing the things that I've been doing, going from thing to thing to thing, I actually managed to stop that and in my heart, quiet in my mind, and make space to connect with Him, to welcome Him, to experience Him. For me, and maybe this says more about me than anything else, usually the next thing I feel is a sense of conviction you should have done this a long time ago. (laughs) Why did you get this far through this task? Or why did you remain this angry or carry this unforgiveness for so long? Or why did you, you know, why did you do so much reading of Bible commentaries and prep of this sermon before you stopped and actually spent time with me around it, right? And then there's this just beautiful response of actually recognising who God is. This beautiful, loving God who is with me. (laughs) who's with you. And for me, if I'm sitting there listening to some worship music, that's often uh, how I experience this. It stirs my affections for him afresh. It draws me closer to him. You ever see in the context of my day-to-day life, often there'll be an instruction, uh, a sense of prompting, a direction, a guidance that I feel that comes from God a different way of interacting with my kids, a a different point or purpose um, in a message or what we're doing um, in the life of our church. Maybe it's an apology I need to give somebody. the, The point is God actually moves and he speaks and he guides and he directs. He ministers to me in those times where I create space simply to be in his presence, responding to him, welcoming him, listening to him, inviting him to move. And for me, this is one of the most precious things in my life. Uh, I was thinking about it this week, and one of certainly the the things that came to mind was the, the first weekend that I got saved. And just my experience of God in that weekend, a quarter of a century later, is still one of the most formative experiences of my entire life. God is good. He is with us. He delights in being with you. He wants to meet with you. And as he does, he will draw you closer. Oh, he'll meet and he'll move and he'll guide and he'll direct, he'll empower, he'll convict. He'll do all the things that he does. But that's his desire. And so this passage concludes, well, it doesn't quite conclude, but where we're going to pull up stumps today is in verse 8, where you just get that responsiveness of Isaiah saying like, well, if I've experienced this, God, and I've been cleansed in the presence of God, then then I'm willing to give it all for him. I want to worship him. I want to glorify him. I want to use my life for him. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, come on, here I am. Send me. This is just one encounter, one experience of one man at one particular point of time in his life. And yet, as this passage declares, God's glory fills the whole earth. As David declared, there is nowhere or at no time that we're not in the presence of God. And so I want to encourage you, I want to encourage myself, to make space, not just in our services, but in our lives, in our hearts, in our walks with him, to connect deeply, genuinely with the God who is here. Last story. You know, one of the patterns that we've put into place um, as a family um, is this idea of of special time uh, with our kids. Uh, We recognise that we are often always in the presence of our kids. They're always in the presence of us, and we play with them a whole bunch of stuff, and we do things and all the kind of stuff that we do. Uh, But, yeah, some parenting advice that... Okay, sorry, I didn't ask permission first. Um, Got a few years ago, just about how important it was to actually label this really deliberate, intentional time that you have with your kids. And so we call it special time, and it is uninterrupted time, whereas one parent with one child, and they're the ones that get to set the agenda, and we're just fully present in that moment with them, doing whatever it is that they want us to do. And so a couple of months ago, for whatever reason, I think I was really tired. Um, maybe I was stressed. That's probably an excuse. Um, but I remember sitting down with my son, and I just wasn't present. I just wasn't there. My body was there, but in my mind and in my brain, I'm like, I'm just, just, I don't have the emotional energy for this, or I'm thinking about things. And so I'm doing what most Gen Xers do, and I kept sneaking this out. Um, I don't know if I was checking emails, or if I was responding to texts, or if I was just mindlessly. Scrolling, social media, I can't remember. But I remember him looking over to me and just putting his hand out towards the phone and he said, Daddy, put the phone away. (laughs) He's three. He's three. Do you reckon I felt convicted? (laughs) Daddy, put the phone away. And in that moment, it's not that our roles were reversed and he was playing Dad about telling me how I should and shouldn't behave and the relationship I should or shouldn't have with my phone at at the home. It was an expression of his desire to be with me. It was an invitation to be fully present with him. Daddy, put the phone away. I want your full attention. Daddy, put the phone away. I love you and I want you to be with me in this moment and I just feel today maybe that's what God is saying to you maybe literally put the phone away (laughs) maybe metaphorically what is it that keeps you from him what is it that keeps you distracted what is it that means you keep him a little bit at arm's length or maybe want him to stay safe In his box that you put him in. The holy, holy God of the universe, in the words of a three year old, says, Put the phone away. I love you. Put the phone away. I created you for relationship. Put the phone away. I want to be with you. I want to speak over you of my love. I want to join with you as we work together. We're going to move into a time of communion now, where we remember what it costs for us to come confidently, boldly, cleansed into the presence of God. And I want to pray for us as we do, because I really believe that God is drawing each of us closer to him this year. I believe everything that I just said, that he loves you, that he delights in being with you, and he wants you to know him and experience that. So we invite you in your own time just to come up and grab these symbols of what Jesus has done on the cross in laying down his life that we might be freely forgiven and cleansed, not because of what we have done, like Isaiah, he didn't change anything in his behaviour, but because of what God has done and the price that he has paid. I invite you to come and take that and just go back to your seats and as you do, commit your ways afresh to the Lord. And maybe you will want to in that exchange and in that act of remembering, maybe you want to pray some form of prayer of repentance. God, I know that I've been keeping you at arm's distance. God, I know that I've been uh, avoiding you a little bit. God, I know I shouldn't, but I've allowed the busyness of my life to so creep in and crowd you out that I can't even remember the last time I just sat in your presence. As we do, thank him, receive his love, commit your ways afresh to him. So, Lord, we want to thank you that you're the God who is with us always. You're the God who is in this very room. And yet even when we walk out of here, you're the God that's going to be with us in the car ride home, with us wherever we have our dinner tonight. You're going to be with us wherever it is that we place our strength and our energy in our hands to this week, whether it's work or uni, school, friends, fun, hobbies, wherever, whenever you are there. I'm sorry, Lord. We're sorry for the times and the ways that we have not responded to that great truth the way that we should have. We declare that we love you, that we want you in our lives, that we love you in meeting with you. So bless us in those times we pray, Jesus. Amen.